Welcome to the Christ Community Church Podcast. This teaching was recorded live during our weekend service in St. Charles, Illinois. We invite you to join us in person any weekend in St. Charles, DeKalb, Aurora, or Streamwood. Learn more at ccclife.org. And now, enjoy the message. Happy Easter, Christ Community Church, and all of you who are watching online today. It's so good to celebrate together the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me? Uh, Lord God, as we gather in your name, we are so grateful that we serve a risen King and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we look into your word today, we pray that you would bring us hope and direction and a sense of your presence with us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Florence Chadwick was a long-distance swimmer. Uh, Back in 1952, she was the first woman to swim the English Channel both directions. Of course, she didn't do it in the the same day. Uh, But then she went looking for her next challenge, and she decided her next big swim would be the 26 miles between Catalina Island and the coast of Southern California. So she trained for this event, and the day of the big swim, she covered herself with grease to keep warm in the water, and then she dove into the Pacific off the coast of Catalina Island, and she began to swim. She was surrounded uh, by a group of boats in which were her supporters who were there to keep an eye out for sharks and to pull her into the boat if necessary, and they all wore t-shirts that said, uh, we go with the flow. I just made that part up. That's not part of the story. There were no t-shirts, all right? But they were there to help her out in case she needed help. So Flo swam and swam and swam, and about 15 hours into her swim, the fog rolled in, and she could no longer see the coastline of California. And her legs began to cramp. And so finally she insisted that they take her out of the water. And to her dismay, she discovered when she got in the boat, she was only about a a mile or so away from the beach in California. So two months later, she was determined she was going to try it again. She got into the water off the coast of Catalina, Catalina, and she swam and she swam and she swam, and once again, 15 hours into the swim, the fog rolled in. But this time she was determined not to give up. And so she continued on until she hit the beach and she was joined by hundreds of fans and news reporters. And they asked her the question, uh, how did you keep going? Uh, You faced the same adversity, you faced the same fog this time around. What kept you swimming? And she responded, I kept a mental image of the coastline in my mind. I kept a mental image, a picture of the coastline in, in my mind. Florence fixated on her destination, even though she couldn't see it. Now, the Bible, God's Word, challenges us to do the very same thing as we swim through the difficult waters of everyday life. The Bible challenges us to keep a mental image of our final destination, our eternal home, constantly in mind. And when we read history, we discover that some of the people who made the the biggest difference in this life are people who kept an eye, so to speak, on the world to come. You know, I'm thinking of people who fought against plague and fought against slavery and fought against tyrants, dictators, and, and, and so on. You know, people like the abolitionist William Wilberforce or, or the champion of the poor Mother Teresa 
You know, or the social justice activist Martin Luther King Jr., the reason for their fearlessness, listen to me, the reason for their fearlessness is that they weren't focused on life, this life is the end all. They were confident that something better awaited them, that their real home, their eternal home was safe and secure so that they could live courageously in the here and now. Now this Easter weekend, uh, we are facing the deeply troubled times of uh, COVID-19 and the financial collapse. It's got us all shallow breathing. But the good news is that Jesus has conquered death. Jesus has opened a way to an eternal home. And if we'll grab hold of this truth, if we'll stay focused upon it, it will change the way we live today and tomorrow and the next day. If you've got a Bible handy, I want you to turn with me to John chapter 14. Now, the good part about doing this online is that if you don't have a Bible handy, you could push pause right now and get, get yourself a Bible and find our app, Christ Community app, and look for the outline. I've been told if you've got a Bible in front of you and an outline, uh, it's much easier to follow along and to hear what God wants to say to you through this broadcast today. You might also want to hit pause if you're a parent and your kids are messing around in the next room and you, you just need to go check up on them. But if you would, turn to John chapter 14, and let me give you a little context for today's passage. Uh, The setting is what we now refer to as the Last Supper. Jesus is sharing a meal with his closest followers uh, the very evening on which he will later be arrested. And then, of course, the next day is Good Friday. He'll be crucified. And then finally, Easter comes uh, Sunday morning when Jesus steps triumphantly out of the grave. So John chapters 14 through 17, they record Jesus' teaching at the Last Supper. Jesus begins by recognizing the the fearful, the confused expressions on the faces of his devoted followers. Look at verse 1 of John chapter 14. Jesus speaks and he says, Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. Let's stop there and acknowledge that this is the word of the Lord. Yes, thanks be to God. Okay, Jesus is about to teach his disciples and us the way home. You know, how do we gain an assurance that our eternal home is secure? And how do we stay focused on this truth like Florence Chadwick stayed focused on the coastline of California so that we will have peace and confidence and perseverance in a time of crisis? Let's begin with, number one, a fear that grips us. Okay, a fear that grips us. Take a, a look again at verse 1. I want you to know Jesus' opening line to his disciples. What does Jesus say? What's the first thing he says right off the bat? Say it with me. Okay, do not let your hearts be troubled. Now, come on, let's say that again. Here we go. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Now, what were Jesus' disciples so troubled about? What, what were they so upset about? Well, if I, I, I could put it in one pithy statement, they were staring death in the face. They were staring death in the face. For starters, there was the impending death of Jesus, their, their mentor, their leader, their confidant, their best friend. Jesus had been telling them for several days as they approached Jer- Jerusalem that when they got to Jerusalem, he would be betrayed, arrested, killed. So they were about to lose a loved one. 
not only the death of a loved one, but they were thinking about the death of their way of life. I mean, these guys had been together for three years. They were a band of brothers. They had traveled together, eaten together, probably pranked each other uh, over, over that time. They had witnessed, they had participated in many of Jesus' miracles. You know, they, they had enjoyed the favor of the crowd. But all of that was now going to die. Their way of life was going to die. And so was their bright hope for the future. I mean, these guys had believed that Jesus was the Messiah. He was the king whom God had promised in the pages of the Old Testament. And if Jesus was king, what would that make them? You know, members of the royal court, you know, cabinet members of the reigning king. But now that dream, that dream had died. So we got the death of a loved one and the death of a way of life and the death of a bright hope for the future. Doesn't that sound like COVID-19 and the financial collapse? You know, the death toll continues to rise. You know, people's way of life, their businesses, their income, their jobs are, are, are being lost. Their bright hope for the future. I mean, think about what you hoped for just two or three months ago. Death. Death. The Bible calls death our greatest enemy. The writer of the New Testament book of Hebrews, chapter 2, verse 15, says that fear of death keeps people in constant slavery. There's, there's no escaping it. We like to tell ourselves that whatever is currently threatening us with death will soon be conquered. I mean, right now they're working on a vaccine, a cure for COVID-19, right? And, and we have no doubt they'll find one. But will that change the bottom line regarding death, the overall death rate? Will that change the overall death rate around the world? No, of course not. You know, it'll still be true that 100% of people will eventually die. 100%. You know, how many people die around the world every year? What's your guess? Okay, about 56 million people die every year, which means that the death toll from COVID-19 is like a drop in the bucket. It's about 100,000 people right now, but even if it grows to a million people, a million people would be less than 2% of the overall death rate, death rate of every year, 56 million people. You know, we will not stop the overall march of death, even if we find a cure for COVID-19. C.S. Lewis, the famous author, scholar, he had a popular radio show back in the late 1940s. World War II had just ended, but people were very fearful about this newfangled atomic bomb. Everyone was afraid that we're going to get bombed, we're going to die because of the bomb. And Lewis calmly pointed out to his listeners in Great Britain, his show was beamed from London, he said, you know, death has been with us a long time. This is not a novelty. This is not something new. He said, if we, if we had lived back in the 16th century, the plague visited London every year. You know, if we had lived a little earlier than that during the time of Viking invasions, you know, at any moment a group of Scandinavian warriors might arrive on our coast and slit our throats. And even today, he said, We've got cancer and we've got car accidents and we've got any number of ways we could die. Believe, believe me, Lewis concluded. 
And I quote now, he says, We were already sentenced to death before the atomic bomb was invented. It is perfectly ridiculous to go about whimpering and drawing long faces because the scientists have added one more chance of painful and premature death to a world which already bristled with such chances and in which death itself was not a chance at all, but a certainty. Death was not a chance at all, but a certainty. Now, does Lewis sound like a Debbie Downer to you? Well, he wasn't. He actually had a reputation for being a, a, a light-hearted kind of guy. I mean, he's the dude who wrote the children's books, Chronicles of Narnia. He called his own autobiography surprised by joy. He was an upbeat guy. C.S. Lewis wraps up his, his comments about the atomic bomb with these words. He says, so let's pull ourselves together. You know, if we're all going to be destroyed by an atomic bomb, let the bomb, when it comes, find us doing sensible and human things. Praying, working, teaching, reading, listening to music, bathing the children, playing tennis, chatting with our friends over a pint in a game of darts, not huddled together like frightened sheep and thinking about bombs. You say, what? You know, first Lewis reminds us that death has always been with us and that we're all going to die. And then he says, so, so enjoy life. What's the deal? Well, let me give you some backstory on C.S. Lewis. For most of his adult life, Lewis was an atheist. But then he began having conversations about Christianity with a good friend of his, a fellow author, a guy named J.R.R. Tolkien. Yeah, the Tolkien who wrote the Lord of the Rings trilogy, those books that have been made into very long movies, uh, which some of us have recently rewatched thanks to uh, staying at home with nothing else to do. And Tolkien started talking about Jesus and about the Christian faith to Lewis, and Lewis listened, and the best part, Tolkien said, is that Jesus Christ conquered the grave on Easter. And if you'll surrender your life to him, you can have new life, eternal life. And so C.S. Lewis surrendered his life to Jesus and it changed his whole view of death. Death does not have to be a fear that grips us. Jesus' first point in John chapter 14, death does not have to be a fear that grips us. Number two, Jesus talked about a future that he has secured. A future that Jesus has secured. Now, Jesus' buddies were deeply troubled by death. So look at how Jesus continues in verse 2 of John chapter 14. He says, My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. So Jesus has secured an awesome future for his followers, which is why his followers don't need to be deeply troubled about the bleak present. So Jesus speaks in these verses of an eternal home. And there are three things about this home that I, I want you to note in the verses that I just read to you. First, this home is in the Father's house. It's in the Father's house. House. Verse 2 begins, my father's house has many rooms. What a warm description of the future home that Jesus has secured for his followers. My father's house has many rooms. Uh, my wife Sue 
spent most of her growing up years in the same house in Fremont, Ohio. Uh, She moved there when she was three years old and didn't leave until she went off to college. And then she and I got married, but we returned year after year after year to her childhood home in Fremont. And last year, her father passed away, and so we had to empty out the house, and we had to put it up for sale. And uh, before the house sold, we took a last walk around, and Sue was recounting uh, fond memories from her growing up years in this house, many of them associated with her loving father. And so as we walked around, she would say things like, you know, yeah, in the family room here, this is where we used to snuggle up on the sofa with a bowl of popcorn on Sunday nights and watch Disney movies. And she, she pointed out the, uh, the window to the backyard and she said, and there's the garden that my, my dad loved to tend. We walked into the kitchen and she said, yeah, the refrigerator that dad would raid in the middle of the night. You know, her father would get up when it was dark and everybody else was asleep and he'd go to the refrigerator to eat the cake that mom had made. He was a dentist with a sweet tooth. And room after room brought back memories of dad, her father's house. That's what made it so special, a loving dad. Well, the future home that Jesus has secured for his followers is his father's house. A heavenly father who loves us dearly. You know, whether or not you've had an earthly father who loves you dearly, God loves you with all his heart. Second thing I want you to note about this eternal home is that it's, it's already prepared. It's already prepared. Look again at the closing line of verse 2 and the opening line of verse 3. Jesus says, I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back. Now, I I used to think that Jesus' words here uh, meant that he has been perpetually constructing this future home for us in heaven. So Jesus died and was resurrected 2,000 years ago, and then he ascended back to the Father, and he's been working on this home ever since. That's a really, really long time to be under construction, this eternal future home, isn't it? So so I'm thinking to myself, well, maybe it means that we're each getting a mansion, you know, five-car garage, built-in swimming pool, tennis courts, home theater. Yeah, we all got our McMansion. Or, or maybe it means that Jesus ran into trouble getting building permits. You know how that goes these days. But Bible scholars tell us, you know, the, the, the length of time here. This doesn't, when Jesus says, I'm preparing a home for you, it's got nothing to do with construction and remodeling. It's got everything to do with crucifixion and resurrection. It's not construction and remodeling. It's crucifixion and resurrection. Let me explain. Okay, the Bible tells us, that we could really never live together with a perfectly holy God. And that's because we're we're sinful and God is perfectly holy. And the two are diametrically opposed to each other. They're they're, they're like oil and water. Or, or, Or a better analogy might be our sinfulness is like bacteria and God's holiness is like an antibiotic and you put the antibiotic in the Petri dish with the bacteria and it destroys it. So we could never live forever in a future home with God when our lives are marked by anger and lust and deceitfulness, materialism, lack of concern for the poor, dishonesty. And our problem gets even worse. 
See, our sins separate us from God. The prophet Isaiah says, Isaiah 59 verse 2, he says, your iniquities have separated you from God. Your sins have hidden his face from you. And because we're separated from God and because God is the source of life, to be separated from God, to be disconnected from God, is to suffer the consequence of death. That's exactly what the Bible says. It says the wages of sin is death. Romans 6, verse 23. It begins with spiritual death on the inside, a broken relationship with God, which leads to physical death at the end of our life, and that leads to eternal death in the world to come. But the Bible tells us that God loves us so much that God sent his son, God sent Jesus. He came to earth, lived a perfect life, and then he laid down that life on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin. The penalty, remember, is death. Jesus took the death that we deserve to die. But Jesus didn't stay dead. On Easter morning, Jesus rose from the dead and Jesus now lives and he offers all those who surrender to him. Jesus offers us forgiveness. He offers us new life. He offers us an eternal home. So Jesus' death and resurrection, listen, Jesus' death and resurrection are how he prepared a place for us in God's eternal home. See, Jesus took care of our problem of sinfulness so that we could forever enjoy the presence of God in all his holiness. You get it? I hope you just said good wherever you're watching or got it rather, and I say good, get it, got it, good. Jesus has prepared a place for us in God's eternal home. And Jesus, don't miss this, Jesus is the way we're going to get there. Go back to John chapter 14 and pick it up at verse 4. Okay, Jesus says to his followers, you know the way to the place where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, why does Jesus say that he's the only way to God? The only way to God's eternal home. No one comes to the Father except through me. Why? Because Jesus is the only one who has resolved that deadly tension between our sinfulness and God's holiness. Jesus is the only one who has paid the penalty for our sin and provided a way for us to be forgiven. And so Jesus is the only one who qualifies to be our Savior. Now, does that sound exclusive to you? It is. He is the only Savior. But it's also inclusive because Jesus invites anyone and everyone to come to him for forgiveness and new life and an eternal home. You know, what a future. It's in the Father's house. It's already prepared. Let me tell you a third thing about the future that Jesus has for us. It's marked by the presence of Jesus. It's marked by the presence of Jesus. Go back to verse 3 of John 14. Let me read it to you again. Jesus promises his followers, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take, listen, Take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You want to know the best part about God's future home for us? Jesus is going to be there. 
Now, if that doesn't excite you, then you probably don't yet know Jesus. You know, I frequently hear people talk about heaven in a way that convinces me that they have no idea what makes heaven heavenly. You know, people, people say, oh, when I get to heaven, I'm going to be able to eat all I want to eat and never gain a pound. You ever heard that? Or, or when I get to heaven, I'm going to play round after round of golf on these heavenly golf courses and it's all going to be free. Or, or when I get to heaven, I'm going to be reunited with my golden retriever, Buster. Or when I get to heaven, I'm going to get to watch the Cubs win the pennant year after year after year. Okay, wouldn't that be heavenly? Really? That's the best we can do? Let me tell you something, friend. Once you surrender to Jesus and Jesus becomes your king, he becomes your savior, he becomes your best friend, and he walks you through good times and bad times throughout life, and he enriches all your other relationships, your marriage, your friendships, your workmates. You have a sense, finally, of life that's on mission, and he speaks to you daily through his word. You reach a point where you finally realize the best part of my future home is that Jesus is going to be there. He said, Jesus is going to be there. And not only that, he wants me to be with him there. That's what he says in John 14. Jesus wants me to be with him. I will see him face to face. That's what makes heaven heaven. So we got number one, we got a fear that grips us. That's death. Number two, we got a future that Jesus has secured. It's in the Father's house. It's already prepared and it's marked by the presence of Jesus. Here's a third thing from Jesus' Last Supper discourse. He talks about a faith that pledges allegiance. A faith that pledges allegiance. Let's go back to the opening verse of today's scripture one last time. John chapter 14, verse 1, Jesus says to his disciples, Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. Circle, if you've got your Bible, circle the two appearances of the word believe there. Believe is a really important word in John's gospel. John uses it over a hundred times in this short biography of Jesus. And he tells us that believing is how we connect, listen, it's how we connect with forgiveness and new life and an eternal home that Jesus offers. How do we connect? We must believe. Okay, but what does it mean to believe? Dr. Matthew Bates is a New Testament scholar and he says that believe is one of the most misunderstood words in the Bible. We use the word believe today, Dr. Bates explains, in ways that have nothing to do with its meaning in Scripture. For example, we sometimes talk about believing or, or having faith as if it's the exact opposite of reason. So you, you kind of believe with your heart and you reason with your head, but the two have nothing to do with each other. You know, remember the old black and white Christmas movie, Miracle on 34th Street? The little girl who didn't believe in Santa Claus because her mother had told her that Santa Claus is a silly myth. So she refused to believe in, in Santa Claus until some, uh, one day someone pointed out to her, you know, faith is believing when common sense tells you not to. Faith is believing in things when common sense tells you not to. No! It's a memorable movie line, but it's bad theology. Believing in Jesus has nothing to do with reason? 
Are you kidding me? God has included in his word four short, historically accurate eyewitness accounts of Jesus' life and ministry. You can read them for yourself. With your mind, you can reason through to belief in Jesus. You know, believing in Jesus doesn't take a blind leap of faith. But believing in Jesus doesn't require that you throw out your brain. Believing in Jesus isn't contrary to reason. It's got everything to do with reason. You know, another modern day misunderstanding of the word believe is to equate believing with simply agreeing with the facts. Okay, that's often how we treat the word believing, as, it, as if it means nothing more than agreeing with the facts. So Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus came to earth and did, did miracles. Jesus died on the cross and he rose from the grave. We say, oh, I believe that. But, but for us, I believe may mean, well, I agree with those basic facts. But will that kind of belief, will it connect us with forgiveness? Will it connect us with new life? Will it connect us with an eternal home? No. In fact, the Bible says, the New Testament epistle of James says, that demons believe the basic facts about Jesus. So, so what does the word believe mean in the Bible? Dr. Bates says, and he's made a scholarly study of this word, written an entire book on the topic. He says that believing has to do with allegiance. Believing has to do with allegiance. To believe in Jesus is to pledge allegiance to him, if you would. It's to surrender your life to Jesus as your Savior and King, to exalt him, to make it your aim to follow him. Let me paint a picture of what believing looks like, and then I'll close by giving you an opportunity to pledge your allegiance to Jesus, if you never have before. I've been reading a new book by author Eric Larson, one of my favorite authors. He writes history in a way that makes it feel like a novel. And so I'm reading a book right now about Winston Churchill and the beginning of World War II. At the beginning of World War II, things couldn't have been bleaker in Great Britain. Uh, Churchill had just come into power, but things uh, were in a sad state. The, the German Luftwaffe was bombing England every night for 57 straight days, night after night after night. Hundreds of bombers. So they were decimating city after city. 43,000 people died in 57 days. Houses were reduced to piles of rubble. You know, you couldn't get gas to heat your house because the gas lines were, were, were busted up. You couldn't get water because the water lines were, were, were broken, had been bombed. People were walking around carrying gas masks everywhere they went. They, they assumed that at any day, uh, the Germans would invade physically, hit the shore. And it was at that time that Winston Churchill became England's prime minister. And something happened. Something changed. People believed in Winston Churchill. Now, what do I mean they believed in, in Winston Churchill? What I mean is that they pledged their allegiance, so to speak, to Winston. They watched him as often as he gave a radio address, sometimes every evening. They would listen, they would tune in, they would hang on his every word, and they would do whatever he asked them to do. You know, if he said, well, we need to ration gas or food, or they would ration. 
If he said we need people to sign up to be recruits in the Army and the Navy and the Air Force, they, they would sign up. Whatever Winston said, they would say, we'll do it, Winston. They believed in him. Allegiance. Let me ask you as we wrap up this Easter sermon, do you believe in Jesus? Capital B or small b? Have you ever pledged your allegiance to Christ? Or is your belief a matter of you agree with all the basic facts or you got a warm place in your heart for him? Now, believing is allegiance. Believing is surrendering your life completely to him. I'm going to give you an opportunity to do that right now with me. I'm going to ask you, wherever you are, Wherever you're watching this online, would you take just a moment right now and bow your head with me? We're going to pray a prayer. We call it the surrender prayer around Christ Community Church. It's how you pledge allegiance to Christ. And there are three very important words in this surrender prayer. The first word is sorry. You know, it begins by saying from your heart, and if you, you've got your head bowed at home, would you, from your heart, just say, God, I'm so sorry for my sin. I am sorry for my and you could fill in the blank with whatever your particular favorite sin is. I'm sorry for my anger. I'm sorry for my sexual immorality. I'm sorry for my addiction to the wrong things. I'm sorry for my materialism. God, I'm sorry that my sins have made it impossible for me to live in the presence of a holy God. And I'm sorry that my sins brought about the death of your son, Jesus. Can you tell God right now, quietly, from your heart, I'm sorry? The second key word is the word thanks. You know, this is your thanks. This is your gratitude expressed from your heart to God saying, thank you for sending your son Jesus. Jesus, thank you for coming and dying on the cross, taking the penalty my sin deserves, dying the death I deserve to die. Thank you. Thank you for doing that for me. So the first word is sorry. The second word is thanks. If you've prayed both of those from your heart just now, there's one word to go. It's the word please. Please, Jesus Christ, come into my life as Savior and King. Please, Jesus, teach me what it means to follow you. Teach me what allegiance means. Please give me a desire to know what you teach in your word. Give me an appetite for spiritual things so that I desire to follow you. Please. Sorry. Thanks. Please. Before I say amen, let me just say, if you just prayed that prayer from your heart, in just a minute we're going to tell you about how to get next steps information that will allow you to build on this first step. You, you've just taken the first step in a genuine relationship with Jesus Christ. We've got information that will tell you how to take next steps. And Jesus, right now, as I close this Easter prayer, I want to pray not only for those who are crossing that line of faith, genuine faith, true allegiance. I also want to pray for those who have crossed that line some, some time in the past, and we are in the midst of this crisis, and we call out to you, and we say, God, give us such a stranglehold on the truth that you have an eternal home prepared for us, that it'll change the way we live in the present, that we will live courageously, that we will live in a bold way, doing things that others are too fearful to do right now, because we know that our eternity is secure with you. We pray all of this in the powerful name of our risen Savior, Jesus Christ. And everybody said, Amen.